we are currently studying the verses of Psalm 119 that correspond to the letter Shin or Sin. Psalm 119, as mentioned so many times, is comprised of eight verses for each letter of the Alephbet in order, in order to convey to you deeply profound and stirring messages. And in each letter, the verses do have commonality, and they kind of cascade into one another. In these classes, I've oftentimes taken a few moments to focus on the meaning of the letter before we got into the details of the actual verses. And today will be no different. We're starting a new letter, the letter Shin. I'm going to take the opportunity to first introduce you to the profound subliminal meanings that are tucked into the proverbial folds of this letter. And you'll see how the meaning of this letter or the way this letter identifies actually filters through and radiates in the verses that are connected to it. So let us begin, as we have in the past, by taking a look at the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat. On page 104, the Gemara there speaks of school children who had brilliant insight into the meaning of the letters of the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet. When it comes to Shin, they simply said, Shin, Sheker. The letter Shin, after all, spells the word falsehood. The Gemara immediately follows this by mentioning that Tuf, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, alludes to Emet, to truth. The Gemara says, that's really interesting. When it comes to the letters that make up the word Sheker, we find them in very close proximity. In fact, they appear in the Hebrew alphabet in succession. Whereas when it comes to the Hebrew letters that comprise the word emet, or truth, quite the contrary seems to be the case. The Gemara says, oh, my timer, and what's the reason that sheker mekarvan mile, that falsehood has its alphabet lined up one after the other, kuf, reish, and then shin. It doesn't spell the word sheker, but the Hebrew letters appear in tight succession with nothing in between them. Whereas the word emet, says the Gemara, is exactly the opposite. Emet merachka mile. Its letters are at the greatest possible distance. For Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Mem is the middle, and Tuf is the last. So they're at equidistant. So why is it that Hashem arranges? Assuming, the Gemara is assuming that the children are right and that Shin represents Sheker. Why is it that Hashem arranges it? Kuf, Reish, and Shin come together in a bundle. And Emet has this wide spread that spans the entirety of the alphabet. And the Gemara answers something which is almost sad. 
It is a, a, casting a sardonic shadow on our world. It's a, almost like a, a cynical comment on our reality. The Gemara says that's because sheker, falsehood, shikra, shchiach. It's very common. It's a, an everyday reality, easily found, always within reach. Falsehood abounds. Kushta leshchiach. The truth is not available freely. It's not commonplace. When people see the truth, they're impressed because it's the exception, not the rule. And that is to say you can expect lies and deceit, falsehood and obfuscation. But when you come in contact or face-to-face -face with the truth, or people of truth and integrity, you take note because that's a rarity. It's a sad commentary, but a simple, painful truth. The world we live in is Alma de Shikra, the world of falsehood. You don't need to go further. For the perfect paradigm of this, when you look at Western civilization, specifically in this continent, who are the heroes? Who are the people who the youth idolize? Celebrities, especially Hollywood. It's all false. A make-believe world. People who have make-believe marriages that last on average less than a year. People who assume nom de gurs or false names, popular names. People who always are portrayed in one fashion, but actually live very differently. And make their living of making believe they're somebody else. And that's the creme de la creme. Every child's dream to end up in Hollywood. So falsehood sells. It's negotiable. It's got lots of adherence. The truth, as they say, it hurts. People will always prefer beautiful lies over the ugly truth. So Emmet, Emmet is uh, far and few in between. Now it is interesting to note that the word shin or sheker represents the first letter of the word, whereas the tof comes at the end of the word. Sheker is shin kufresh, and emet is aleph mem and tof. The Ben Ishchai in his commentary, Ben Yehoda, explains it this way. He says, falsehood seems to be very powerful. Yet, its power will always wane, and in the end, sheker ein lo raglayim. Our sages said, falsehood has no feet upon which to stand. It's buttressed by feet of clay, clay that crumbles and collapses. The shin, the sheker, starts off the beginning of the word, but in the end, Nothing is left. Emmet is quite to the contrary. It's not popular. It doesn't seem to be gaining a foothold. Few people seek it or are interested in it. Yet, in the end, it is the truth 
that prevails. So the shin at the beginning of the word sheker indicates its initial popularity and eventual waning. Emet, with its tough at the end, represents the ultimate triumph of the truth. Another interesting thing to note before we move forward is that the Maharal of Prague says that the notion of sheker, again, and that means I lost also what I wrote in the beginning. It's very frustrating. Back up. Same broadcast. So the Maharal of Prague notes that sheker doesn't have to be an absolute lie. Sheker just means something which isn't absolutely true. Because truth is absolute. We know that the world is divided into various forms. Forms of existence or life, if you will. As the medieval sages of our Jewish people put it. There is domem, the inanimate world. There is vegetation, which is called someach. There is the, the animal world called chai, and then finally medaber, the human being who's called the great communicator. Truth be told, it's a subject for a different day and another lecture, what really this represents. But the Maharal of Prague says, if you are to say that a person represents mass, inanimate mass, it's not a lie. Flesh is flesh. Bone and stone are both really, in a sense, inanimate. In fact, when the body is emptied of the soul, the body still exists. There is a domem element to the soul. But if you were to call a person a domem, that would not be the true description. Because it's not an exclusive definition, it's an inclusive definition that does not zero in on what the human being really is. If you would say that a person has tzomeach or vegetative-like qualities, you wouldn't be wrong. The hair grows like grass. The nails grow like vegetation. We do have a vegetative quality to us, and God forbid when a person is robbed of conscious existence, the terminology in English is a vegetable. And yet Maharal says, if you call a person a vegetable, that's a lie. Even when a person is, God forbid, in a vegetative state. In a time other than the one we're in now, it used to be understood by all that to pull the plug on a person who's in a vegetative state but drawing his own breath is an act of murder. Today it's called mercy. In today's confused world where light has been called darkness and darkness is labeled light and all, so to speak, definition and labels are being questioned and shaken, the notion of Havdalah, distinction and separation, which were actually initiated by the Creator Himself, are being torn and destroyed before our very eyes. But it used to be understood that a human life is sacred, whether a person is engaged or not. And so if you harvest a pepper, you didn't kill the pepper. If you cut the fruit from the tree, you didn't kill the fruit, although technically you did. The fruit was still alive and growing, and now it isn't. 
But if you call a person a vegetable, Maharal says that's a lie. If you call a person an animal, that too is a lie. For killing an animal is not an act of murder, even if it's immoral to hunt or torture animals. But taking a human life without just cause, an innocent human life taken, is always an act of murder. So we really have to call something by its fullest description in order to speak the truth. And when we speak the truth, it may not be popular, but the truth will always remain the truth. And so the Maharal says, the falsehood that we speak of here are not outright lies, but lies that reek of obfuscation and the shifting, twisting, or minimizing of the truth and reality as it objectively really is. So this is like a little bit of a, a preface. Okay, so if the letter Shin represents Sheker, well, it must be that in these verses we will find an emphasis on the concept of Sheker. And yet, today's class, which we titled Cold Pursuit, opens with the notion of David HaMelech stating, Sarim Rudafuni Chinam, princes, pursued me without cause. But from your word did my heart fear. A strange verse, really. What is the connection between the fact that David may have been pursued without just cause? Why is it that the cold pursuit that David experienced has to be responded to with fear of Hashem's word? What's the connection? So here is one of many ways to understand this Pasuk. And as I titled it, this is 4x4. Four four. So in 4x4, four four, the first thing we're going to talk about is the notion of falsehood. According to the commentary that comes to us from the Zichron Shmuel, he says, we believe that this, in this Pasuk, David HaMelech is, amongst other things, referring to Jewish nobility who behaved seditiously towards David HaMelech, the monarch. These are people who have shown up in the Davidic narrative before. He alludes to them time and again in the book of Tillam. The most famous of the group are Doeg and Achitophel. Doeg and Achitophel said to David HaMelech, you're not really a legitimate Jew. You shouldn't be a monarch. In fact, you shouldn't even be able to marry in to the community as a full-fledged member of the nation of Israel. Your grandmother is a convert, and she comes from the nation of Moab. And the Torah says, Amoni of Moavi layavo Hashem. Converts, albeit considered Jewish, if they come from the nations of Moab, Ammon and Moab, those are the nations that descend from the respective daughters of Lot, who slept with their father, albeit with best of intentions, and even publicized the deed so that people would know that they didn't lay claim to any kind of supra-normal or miraculous conceptions. Nonetheless, 
These are two rotten nations. Rotten nations, and even when adherents or members of that nation join the Jewish people, they cannot marry in to the rest of the nation for generations. And David Amelech's grandmother is a Moavit. So David Amelech says, this is all a lie. They know that it's not true. They know the halacha ordains that Ammoni and Moavi refer to a male. A male or, conversely, Ammoni or Moavi. A male member of Ammon or Moav. But not Ammonit or Moavit, not a female member. They know that what they're saying is a lie. But it was a great example of fake news. It's sold. People love to disparage the king. And so David HaMelech was being pursued, cold pursuit, with bald-faced lies. And he was being disparaged, demeaned, and his position was being challenged and weakened. However, David HaMelech says, When you look at the Torah itself, which is Dvarcha, there was a tremor in my heart. I sometimes used to say, maybe, maybe they have a point. Maybe they're right. However, the Zichr Shmuel says, based on the words of the Sif Sekayanim Alatayra, the word Dibur, which is strident talk, refers to the scripture. That's unapologetic, straightforward, brusque at times. Amira, the more softly spoken iteration of Hashem's teaching to us, refers to Torah Shabalpeh, the oral tradition. And so, the Zichr Shmuel suggests that that's the meaning of the next verse, which we will not be studying today. And that is after verse 161, which opens with the falsehood, the defamation of David HaMelech, or the disparaging of his lineage. The next Pasuk says, I rejoice over your Amira. So, David HaMelech is being libeled falsely. But there's a tremor in his heart. He has fear in his heart because the scripture says it. However, he rejoices because the oral tradition explains that that's not the meaning of the scripture. And of course, we know that as Rambam explains in his entry, his Hakdam, his preface to Mishnah Torah, HaTorah VaHamitzvah, which were given to us at Moshe Misinai, include and are comprised of the scripture and the oral tradition. And the two are inseparable. So the Dvarcha gave David cause for fear. The Imroscha, the oral tradition, gave him a cause for joy. So this is one way we see that the words that open the verses of the letter Shin open with the notion of falsehood. I should also tell you that the Medrash talks about this, our rabbis expound on it, that the letter Shin, in the way it's written in the Sefer Torah, comes to a point. At least that's clearly how it is in the writing of the Bet Yosef and the Arizal. And that point doesn't rest on a flat, so to speak, surface. And that represents the notion of Sheker in Laraglaim, that falsity has legs of clay. It doesn't really have legs. It, it's balanced on a point, but it can't be established for permanence. As we learned, it starts off very powerful 
but in the end, it crumbles. Now, another interesting thing to notice that David HaMelech in verse 163, which is the third pasuk of the letter Shin, actually says the word. He says, Sheker Saneti. I hate, I detest falsehood. And then he concludes the verse with the words, Torah Ahavti. The Radak, in his commentary of verse 162, says, Torah follows the notion of David's abhorrence of falsity because the Torah of truth is the polar opposite of lies. And finally, the last uh, pasuk, the concluding verse of the letters Resh, starts off with the words Rosh Devarcha Emet. Your opening words are true. And there's a fascinating Gemara Mechsechat Kiddushan that speaks about this, and I shared the details in our class, um, verse 160, about how initially the, 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 the scene, people questioned the notion of Hashem is a Sarat Adibrot, but in the end, they understood that Rosh Devarcha, from the very beginning, it was Emet. So we see that the letters of Shin, at least the first three verses, are framed by the notion of truth versus the notion of falsehood. Verse 160, Rosh Devarcha Emet, 161, false libel, 162, David HaMelech's answer or his joyous response to the lies, and then finally, his abhorrence of lies, and again, a return to Torah of truth. So at least the first three verses clearly have a narrative that weaves its way through them that indicate the rejection of falsehood and the falsity or fake news that David HaMelech had to contend with in his time. Okay, so that's take one. Take one is on falsity. I told you it was four by four. The next thing we're going to talk about is fair play. Let's take a look at the verse itself, and we will return to Otiot, the Rabbi Akiva, a little bit later. I've been pursued with no cause. Says the Mitsudas David, Sodim Radafuni, Afki Hasodim Radafuni Bechinam. Although these magistrates or people of power, the Ibn Ezra says, they are Hamishtaradim. Mishtaradim are those who seek to assert power, to control. So these people pursued me Bechinam for no good reason. Without cause. Aloi Chamas Ubiyadi Hayo Haloi Hayo Linkim Nakam. Fair play would have been for me to retaliate. I should have taken revenge. Why didn't you take revenge? Turning the cheek is not a Jewish thing. That's true. But revenge isn't Jewish either. Turning the cheek isn't Jewish because we have every right and responsibility to defend ourselves. Revenge is not an act of defense. Revenge is when you seek to exact subsequent payment, to give yourself a little bit of schadenfreude, the joy from somebody else's misery, the vengeance that you've exacted. 
So Metzudah's David says, I had the right to strike back. I was fearful of your word, Hashem. I wasn't afraid of them. I could have gone after them. But Hashem's Torah says that vengeance is wrong. And being fearful of Hashem, David HaMelech stood down. So is turnabout fair play? Not necessarily. David HaMelech rejects the notion of vengeance or getting exacting recompense because ultimately it is Hashem he reveres and it is Hashem's Torah that David HaMelech will follow. Falsity. And then we talked about the notion of fair play. And now we'll move into fear. What did the king fear? What was the source of his fear, fearfulness, and fearlessness? A very important conversation that we'll now have together. But before I go forward into that, I want to return to the Otiot the Rebbe Akiva. Otiot the Rebbe Akiva is a, it's a name for a medrash in which Rabbi Akiva supposedly explained the different meanings of the alphabet. There are two versions of Oistios and Rabbi Akiva. The first is very close to the teachings that we have in Mesechet Shabbat on page 104. In fact, almost verbatim. In Oistios and Rabbi Akiva version 1, we start with the letter Tuf, as each one of the letters vies for the privilege of starting the Torah. And each letter makes its claim and is struck down. So Shin was vying for the honor and he was told, Sheker. You represent falsehood. You can't start the Torah with a Shin. And that kind of jibes with what the Gemara tells us. Shin Sheker. In the first version of Rabbi Akiva's Medrash, and it may in fact be that both Medrashim do come from Rabbi Akiva also, we don't, we don't know that that's not the case. It may have been two versions of two different teachings, both of which are called Otiyotir Bekiva. So in the first version, the letters follow. They cascade or domino effect from one to the next. Tough, rejected. Shin, rejected. And so on and so forth. In the next version, it starts from Aleph. But the conversations or meanings attributed to the letters do not have necessarily a homogeneous train that follows. It isn't kind of a narrative or a singular story. It's just different snippets, different pieces, different ideas. The only commonality is that they're all letters of the alphabet, and they're presented in order. So there, the letter Shin is depicted as Shane, the teeth. And the teeth are linked to wickedness. I kid you not. I hope there's no dentist out there going to be upset with me. This too is a verse, a pasuk, in the book of Tehillim, right in the outset. In chapter 3, Psalm number 3, in the 8th verse, David HaMelech says, Kuma Hashem Arise, O God, and deliver me. Elokai, my God, Ki hikita et kol oivai, for you have always struck all of my enemies lechi upon the cheek. You've always smacked them down, God. Shine rishoyim 
Shibarta. The teeth of the wicked you smashed. Which according to Radak means these are the gnashing of the teeth of the evildoers who wished to harm David and failed. But the notion of teeth and wickedness in our tradition is related to at least two major biblical narratives. The first is with regard to a wicked Jew, a really, really rotten son of very good and holy parents. His name is Esau, Asaph. And Asaph hates his brother, who is pious and righteous. His name is Yaakov. You know the story, Esau versus Jacob. They meet when Yaakov is returning home to Eretz Yisrael, having established a family and fulfilled the mission that he was sent on. He's fearful. He's fearful of Esau. And on that fateful day when they meet, it says they embrace and he kisses him. Vayishakehu. And there are little dots on the word Vayishakehu, and that indicates we should read a little bit more carefully, read deeper. And one of the Madrasha, which Rashi actually quotes, is that Esau tried not to kiss Jacob, but to bite him. His intention was to barbarically bite off his jugular and kill him on the spot. Talk about vulgar violence. But miraculously, Yaakov's neck becomes marble-like. And instead of puncturing the soft skin and ripping out his jugular, Esau's teeth are broken when he gnashes down or bites with force. And that's why, that's why he cried. He began to weep because he cracked his teeth. It was in terrible pain. And that's what the Medrash Tanchuma says. It says, Tzavarecha, Migdal Shayish, on the verse in Shir Hashirim, which describes your beautiful neck as of gleaming marble, the Medrash Tanchuma says, you smashed the teeth of the wicked. Shibarti, Shine Lechi, Shine Rishoyim Shibarta refers to Esau gnashing and breaking his teeth. The next narrative fast forwards four generations. Now we are heading into the land of Israel, still led by Moses himself. A great battle ensues in the northern areas of Transjordan. Og, a mighty, fearsome giant, comes to lead his armies out of the kingdom of Bashan. Og, the fearsome giant, lifts a mountain over his head. The Gemara says that this mountain was the size of the entire Israelite encampment. And he intended to cast it upon the nation of Israel and destroy them all at once. Now, of course, this may all be a metaphor. In Mikri the verses cannot be disconstrued from their literal meaning, but we can construe or understand words of Talmud or Medrash somewhat allegorically. At any rate, if you follow the narrative in the Gemara, it says that as he lifted the mountain, God brought ants or locusts to eat through the top of the mountain, which caused the mountain to turn hollow 
and to fall around his neck. And when Og tried to pick the mountain off his neck, it says that his teeth grew into the mountain, preventing him from removing the mountain. And so he had a real alb albatross around his neck. And then Moshe Rabbeinu is able to slay him. This is a Gemara in Brachas on page Nandalad, page 54. Now the Rashba, one of the great Rishonim, explains this in metaphorical terms. He said he knew that Israel could not conquer him by virtue of their own merits. Instead, they would have to be relying on the merits of the patriarchs. But Og himself had a patriarchal merit. No, he wasn't a descendant of the patriarchs, but he did do a backhanded favor to Avraham Avinu. Never mind that he did it with the worst of intentions, expecting Avram to be killed in the battle, but he is the one who brings the message of Avram's kinsperson, Lot, being taken captive. And so holding the mountain actually refers, metaphorically, to holding the merit, the zechut of Avraham Avinu. Because we see in the marshal, in the parable or oracles of Bilam, that it says, Mirosh Tsurim Erenu, I see you from mountaintops. And our sages, and Rashi says, this is the straightforward meaning of that parable that refers to the patriarchs. Miyusodim Kaharorim Alolu. So mountains are patriarchs. And Og is holding the merit of the patriarchs over the Jewish people. And he wants to appropriate that merit for himself. Every single human being possesses a spark of goodness. Og's teeth represented that spark of holiness. The spark which he sought to magnify, harnessing that energy to defeat and destroy the Jewish people. But in the end, the spark of holiness was his undoing, enabling Am Yisrael to vanquish him and enabling the Jewish people to proverbially take away, so to speak, the impact of what he might have been able to do and Moshe Rabbeinu eliminates him. Now it's interesting to note that there's this idea of the Russia, the wicked son in the Haggadah, and there we speak of blunting his teeth, which is also related to breaking the Russia and the force of the Russia. As we know, the Benya Yoda explains that Ugg sought to usurp the power of this lofty soul, the, fate, the future Mishnah sage, Reb Shimon ben Nisanel, that had a connection to Og. But the teeth, Shimon, son of Nisanel, Shin, worked against Og, not for him. Anyway, the bottom line is that the word Shin represents the wicked. So in the first iteration, it represented falsehood, and the verses here correspond to overcoming false allegations and libel. And, and of course, David Melech successfully overcomes that. We now move, then we, from there we moved into the notion of fair play, which David Melech did not engage in. And that teaches us a very important lesson about seeking vengeance. But now, my dear friends, we come to what is perhaps the most important lesson of all. What should cause us fear? Should we have anxieties? This is really, really important. According to 
many of our rabbis. When we say Sarim Rodafuni, we're talking about powerful adversaries of David HaMelech. Powerful because they literally can dethrone him. Painfully powerful because they're members of his own family. Members of his own family sought to bring his downfall. And when they come from your own family, that is the most painful of all. In fact, we have a chilling statement which is made in the Gemara. It's a Gemara in Mesechet Brachas on page 7b. The Gemara says, Kosha tarbot ra betoch beto shal adam. Having things go sour in your own family is more painful, harder to deal with than the proverbial battles, the wars that will precede the coming of Mashiach. So this is really painful for David HaMelech. He's dealing with adversaries who, as the Ibn Ezra told us, misstarted him. They seek to dethrone him, to steal his power. However, Ibn Ezra says, I was not afraid. It doesn't say he wasn't pained. It does say he wasn't afraid. Why wasn't David HaMelech afraid? Why wouldn't he be afraid of losing his standing in his position? Ibn Ezra doesn't explain that. He just says, Rak midvarcha. I was only afraid of your word. In the words of the Radak, Sarim, Sorry Yisrael, we speak here about the enemy from within. In cold pursuit, Shaul and his people, David HaMelech's father-in-law, or even worse, all the people, the nobles, who allied themselves to the cause of David HaMelech's own son Avshalom who sought to dethrone his father. David HaMelech says, yoter. It was your words more so. And as he explains, Radak, what was my fear? My fear was, That's what gave me anxiety. Not that I'll lose my power, not that I'll be dethroned, not that my enemies will get the better of me, my fear, my anxiety was, lest I violate your word. Yoter mi pachti mahem. Even more than I feared, than attacked by them. That's what I was afraid of. Or perhaps I was afraid, that they would cause me to deviate from your Torah. How would they cause David Amel to deviate from Hashem's Torah? The Radak sends us off to the book of Shmuel. In Shmuel Aleph, we have David HaMelech saying, Ki gershune hayoyim, for they have driven me today, mehistapeach benachlas Hashem, from being able to gather myself into the inheritance of God. Lamer saying to me, Lechavod elihim achirim, go and worship other gods. What does that mean? Mitzudah's David says simply, Ki gershem ha'isim ibn Yisrael lelechaz b'in pelishtim. 
They're causing me not to live in a Jewish environment. And not to live in a Jewish environment can necessarily subtract one's Yiddishkeit because Judaism flourishes when one lives with a sense of community. As the Radak elaborates, he says, they are forcing me, minachlas Hashem, from the inheritance of God, a euphemism for the land of Israel, logger ben agoyim, to live amongst the nations. And even though I haven't yet left the province of Judea, yitztarech lotzes, says David, I'm afraid I'm going to be forced to leave. And he was. I cannot escape from Shaul's murderous desires otherwise. He is in Eretz Yehuda. He's in Eretz Yehuda. He's the king. He holds sway. And David and Melech had to go to Achish, who's the king of Gath. And there, from there he went to Mitzbem Moab. The Gemara Meseches Kesubis, based on this notion, this Pesach that says, driven out of from being able to gather amongst the Nachlas Hashem, saying to me, worship other gods. The Gemara says, Did they really say that? Did anybody say to David, abandon Judaism? Convert and adopt a different faith? No. Elo, rather says the Gemara, this is to tell you, Living outside of Israel, all of us, living outside of Israel is tantamount to worshipping foreign deities. There's a lot to say about that. But at any rate, on a simple level, Davra Melachir is afraid. What's he afraid of? Not afraid of losing power, not afraid of suffering, not afraid of defeat. He's afraid that he will not stick to the straight and narrow of Hashem's word. I think it's very powerful. What should give us fear? What should we be afraid of? What should we be concerned about? Our bank account? Our politics? Our position? Or should we be afraid of our piety or the lack thereof? Rabbeinu Moshe Alshech, in his commentary on Tilim Rimumoskel, he says that this verse this verse speaks volumes on the fear and anxiety one should have of sin. And he says, I cannot compare, says David HaMelech, the fear of being pursued by humans, of experiencing suffering or deprivation, the way I fear the notion of sin. And he says, because in the end, I have nothing to fear but God Himself. Sarim Rodafuni says, Al Shechinam, it has no Im impact on me. It's, so to speak, causeless, baseless, and effectiveless, if that's a word. It makes no impact whatsoever. And that's because I know they cannot have any kind of hand on me. But they may succeed. That's because I sinned. And that's because I was warned by Nasan Hanavi that my sins would ultimately bring recompense and I would have to pay the wages of those sins. 
That, says David HaMelech, is what he feared. So very interestingly, we have now an insight from none other than David HaMelech of what a person should really be fearful of. The notion of fear. Fear? Fear is about HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Reb Shmuel Vital, the son of a great Reb Chaim Vital, who actually committed most of his father's works to the form in which they're published today. Reb Shmuel Vital in his commentary on Tehillim says that in these very psukim, David HaMelech says, even though they have pursued me, it is all chinam, it's all a waste, he says. They have not struck fear in my hearts. I do not have any anxiety as a result of their attacks. I'm impervious to it. I do have fears. My fears are not living up to my potential. My anxiety is not functioning as I know Hashem wants me to. That's the fears of David HaMelech. Those were his concerns. Interestingly, Rabbeinu Moshe HaYitzari says that David HaMelech here is being matzdik alavis adin. He's accepting upon himself judgment. He says, I know if they succeed, it's not because they succeeded. It's because God wanted them to succeed. It's because I'm being punished for the sins that I committed. There's a fascinating interpretation here from the famous Reb Shmuel Schmelke of Nikolsburg, the disciple of the Magad who was tasked with bringing Hasidus to the Jews of Germany. He says that when you're in a situation in which people cause you fear, maybe it's a life-threatening situation, maybe they threaten to take away your livelihood or your position, and you're fearful of this. Said Reb Shmelke, this is because you didn't fear Hashem. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu now has sent you some fear. And you stop and think and remember, and where does everything come from? And maybe this will direct you back to Hashem. And maybe then you'll be afraid of sin, afraid of violating your bond with God, afraid of falling short in the mission that Hashem gave you. But, Reb Shmelka says, David HaMelech was able to say stoutly, this is Chinam. Because, as the Shmelka points out, David was considered Merkava, entirely committed to Hashem, a very lofty level of 1,000% commitment. And as such Chinam, I don't need this fear. I revere and fear Hashem. I don't need them. So this notion is David HaMelech in a sense, sharing with us of what we should be fearful. I once heard this, uh, I was never able to substantiate it. The Rebbe had to undergo some kind of medical procedure. And somebody asked the Rebbe in passing, if the Rebbe is afraid of the procedure. And the Rebbe matter-of-factly said, Mein man hat made of Rosh Hashanah. My husband has fear of Rosh Hashanah, not of physical, material challenges. So they say, and again, this is unsubstantiated, although it's quoted here in a recent sefer called Yashmir Kolti Lasse, that before the Alter Rebbe was arrested, that they found a note in his drawer 
And the note, the note contained this verse, this pasuk. Sarim chinam, ministers, noble people, you know, the czar's men, have pursued me for no cause, but midvarcha pachad libi, as if to say, what was the Alter Rebbe afraid of? Not afraid of the material earthly court, but afraid that there was a kitrug, some kind of decree momaila from on high. In other words, the Alter Rebbe recognized that this was entirely not what it seemed to be. That's what he was afraid of. He was afraid, and we know there was a kitrug, and there's a long story about that. In the narrative of Yutas Kislev, it ends with a meeting, a paranormal meeting between the souls of the Magad and the Baal Shem Tev in the very jail cell where the Alter Rebbe is informed that there is a Kitrug, a decree upon him, but that now the decree has been rescinded. That's what the Alter Rebbe was afraid of. And that's what David Amal is telling us. And whilst this sounds like something that's maybe in the realm of great Sadiqim, in truth, it actually isn't. Listen to this. I once heard, and again, I never saw this written, but I heard this, that somebody once asked the tzaddik, Reb Lev Yitzchav why do we say, Why do we ask God to give us fear? Don't we want to avoid fear? Reb Lev Yitzchak said, indeed, there is one fear which consumes all other fears. If one is fearful of Hashem, then all the other things that cause fear dissipate. But if one has no yiras shamayim, no fear for Hashem, then all the other fears begin to propagate. I don't know if the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs saw this from the Barditchever and reframed it in his exquisite way, or if he came to this on his own. But this is something that he wrote. And I quote, A sense of proximity to God overshadows our own existence as we are overcome by being in the presence of the Almighty. The silent prayers, he's referring to the Amidah of the High Holidays, reflect the special intimacy with God that we enjoy during the prayer. And then Rabbi Sachs, Zechron Lavracha wrote, an eminent psychiatrist once told me, had I the authority to do so, I would eliminate the high holy day prayer that begins with the words, place your fear. Fear is the major cause of various mental illnesses that beset mankind. In order to preserve one's mental health, one should be free of fears. There is certainly no reason why anyone should ever pray for fear he confidently pronounced. Rabbi Sachs wrote, his words actually helped me understand the true nature of this prayer. And this is what I told him. Everyone seems to be beset with fears of all kinds. Some are afraid that they will not succeed in their careers. Others fear that they will lose their wealth or status or that they will fail to achieve sufficient status. Many people fear sickness and bodily weakness, as well as a host of other problems and difficulties. Man is constantly plagued with all sorts of often insignificant fears. I am not a psychiatrist, but I do know that there is one fear 
that can eradicate all others. It is the fear of God. That is what we request in this high holiday prayer. Rabbi Sachs wrote, We pray that this most significant fear will free us from all the others that adversely affect our lives. How exquisite. Exactly what David Amalek is saying. And then, in my journeys and research, I discovered that the Malbim actually spells this out. In his commentary on, on this very Pasuk and Tehillim, the Malbim says, Lo Efchad, they pursue me with no cause. They've got power, ability. They seek to dethrone me. I'm not afraid of them. And that's alluded to in the word chinam. They come with emptiness. No cause. Ein poilim birfidosam. Here, the Malbum seems to jibe with the words of Shmuel Vital. I don't know if he saw the Peter of Shmuel Vital, but it jibes with it. He says they are not effective. It's ineffective their pursuit of me. Because I'm not afraid of them. I fear Hashem. Says the Malbim. The great fear that I have from your word. And it removes the minuscule fear. That's what Radak was saying. He said there's, there's fear, but I don't really get worried or concerned about that fear. It's the greater fear. The Malbim explains, indeed, the greater fear of Hashem eclipses the smaller and insignificant fears to the point that the fears that they seem to want to inflict will have no bearing whatsoever. He's Teflon-coated, protected by his fear of Hashem. And the Malbim gives a simple mushal. He says, suppose a person is being pursued by a bee. Nobody wants to be stung by a bee. But he says, Just as one would not be afraid of a bee, when he faces a lion, because the great fear of a lion will eliminate the minuscule, relatively tiny fear of the bee's bite. And indeed he says, this is what our sages said, I'm ashamed. My fear of Hashem caused me to be ashamed that I have other fears. In other words, I'm shamed out of the other fears. Because I have a sense of reverence and offer Hashem, that itself shields and protects me from any kind of human desire or machination. They can't harm me. There's nothing they can do to get me down because I fear and revere Hashem Yisbaruch. And so, my friends, we started with falsity. We moved to fair play. We've discussed fear, and now let's conclude with an eye to the future. The Sepharno says that this notion of Sarim Rodafuni Chinam is David Amelach prophetically 
speaking of the future, a future that has yet to unfold. The baseless pursuit and persecution of the Jewish people will reach its crescendo in the final moments before the coming of Mashiach. Sorim Radafuni Chinam says the Sepharno, Rabbi Avadya says that the ministers, princes who pursue me with no cause refers to Muhammad's Goig, the final battle before the coming of Mashiach. But what strikes fear in my heart is not Gog, but Midvar Cha Hashem. It's your words because Hashem says that in the darkest moments of Golos, on that day, I will shield or conceal my face from you. And so we're not afraid of people. We're not afraid of armies. We're not afraid of their baleful intent. We're not afraid of their threats. We have to be afraid of Hester Ponim, of Hashem, Chas V'Shalom, concealing himself from this. My dear friends, this really is about back to the future. And I'll finish by concluding the circle, the complete circle of starting with falsity and ending with a sense of fear for Hashem which unleashes the future, the coming of Mashiach. In the famous Hemshech, the serialized Maimorim, that the Friedrich Rebbe left us as his last will and testament, heralding Deir Hashvi, the seventh and final generation of Chabad that will have the privilege to welcome Mashiach, the Friedrich Rebbe begins the third, the, the third Maimor of the tenth chapter with the notion of Vaosali Migdash Vishakhanti Besecham, he says he speaks there about transformation, he speaks about folly, he speaks about foolishness that has to be redirected, re-engineered into holy folly, into a beyond rhyme and reason dedication and devotion to Hashem. And he says this is not only something that is relevant or meaningful on a national level, but when we speak about the Asuli Migdash, when we speak about the lofty calling of building Hashem, a Migdash, a sanctuary, we refer not only to Tzion and Yerushalayim, but ultimately the Bechol Echod V'Echod. This is something that must take root in the heart, mind, and soul of each and every single one. And how does that happen? When we transform our own darkness so that it is distilled into light. This brings forth the greatest glory of God, that there is what's called a virtuous kind of light developed. That the light is able to resonate in an overt and obvious way. It's able to illuminate in a manner in which we can bask. And that's the meaning, he says, of Ache Shittim, of the Acacia wood, which is a theme, a dominant theme in this Mimer. And the Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe says, the Ache Shittim, the wood planks which form the walls of the Mishkan are Krushim. They're made of boards, it says. And the word Krushim is the same Hebrew letters that make up the word Sheker, falsehood, Kesher, that bound, that bound, the bounding together of inappropriateness, the binding together of that which is unholy. However, the mission and purpose of every Yid 
is to take the sheker and to turn it into keresh. Very interestingly, as we pointed out at the beginning of this class, the Gemara says that the words for sheker are actually found in close proximity. Right? We said the notion of they are sheker mekorvon mili. They're together. And indeed, when they're together properly, they spell not sheker, but kufre shin spells keresh. That means the building of the walls of the future Beis HaMikdash. And so, my dear friends, David HaMelech has given us a matrix to make life meaningful. He's given us strategies to elevate and uplift our existence, ways in which we can fully bring forth the potential and the gift of life. David HaMelech teaches us here to stay away from falsity, even if it's popular. For in the end, it is but vapor. It fades. It has no lasting impact. David HaMelech teaches us that turnabout isn't fair play, but rather we should always revere and fear the word of Hashem. He gives us a sense of how we can actually liberate and eradicate the anxieties which oftentimes will beset us. It's the fear of Hashem that consumes all the others. And David Melech indicates to us that that is what can unleash the future in real time. Following this playbook, following David HaMelech's illuminated pathways, will Hashem lead us to the tenth and final shira, to the songful expression of love and thanksgiving, which we will together participate in with the coming of Mashiach Tzidkenu and the transformation of Sheker into the Kroshim of the future Migdash Mishkan, the Bias Mashiach Tzidkenu Bimheira will be Amenu. Amen.